All of us here at FX Medicine are excited to share with you our fantastic infographics. They're now available to purchase in high quality poster and digital formats. To celebrate, we're offering an introductory discount of 10% until the end of 2019. Add the coupon code PODCAST at the checkout at fxmedicine.com.au. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today again is Beth Bundy for part two of Adrenal Fatigue is a Myth, Here's Why. Beth is a qualified naturopath of over 19 years, specialising in integrative and functional medicine. She worked previously as technical consultant with PathLab, one of Australia's original functional pathology companies, and currently trains health practitioners nationally as clinical consultant at NutriPath Integrative Pathology Services, where she's in high demand as an engaging, informative speaker. And she also, she also works as a functional medicine practitioner in a busy and highly successful integrative medicine practice. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Beth. How are you? I'm back. <laughs> when we last spoke, Beth, in part one, we got to testing, but we never got to cover it. How about we dive right in? What sort of testing? <laughs> what sort of testing is appropriate? And let's then talk about how we tease apart the results that we get from that. Oh, sounds a good thing. Uh, firstly, I might just mention that because we're talking about cortisol, we're measuring cortisol, I should probably briefly mention there's generally three ways we can measure cortisol. Um, and so there's the blood, uh, which is the standard uh, doctor way, is to take a, uh, a blood cortisol, a serum cortisol. Uh, and what we have to remember with this is when you're seeing a measure of a serum cortisol, most of the uh, cortisol in the blood is actually bound by cortisol binding globulin, leaving only a very small amount, maybe 1% to 3% bioavailable to enter the tissues uh, and to give a biological response. So the generally the bioavailability of the cortisol will vary depending on uh, someone's cortisol binding globulin or CBG. Uh, and this is made in the liver and controlled by hormones such as estrogen, thyroid and cortisol feedback itself. So when we're looking at cortisol in the blood, we go, oh my goodness, it's excessively high, it's excessively low, it's quite normal. Uh, it, it does pay to look at other things as well. So if we say that the in the blood, it's a good estimate of the adrenal gland's capacity for total cortisol synthesis, but it's not helpful to find out then what part of that we can actually use. Then uh, the latest craze, it seems, is urine testing. Uh, even though 24-hour uh, urine cortisol has been around in the medical world for quite some time, uh, again, a 24-hour uh, collection 
will only give you a flat figure mm. and you don't see any ebb and flow across the day. You just say, over the day, you, uh, That's your total you weed excretion. out this. Yeah, and that really doesn't tell me were you, you know, crazy high in the morning and then fell in a heap or were you – it just doesn't tell you enough information. So there is now the, uh, the dried urine craze where you can collect urine – they take four samples across the day, a la the cortisol measurement, uh, saliva measurement. So what we have to remember with this is that urine is after the fact, if you get my meaning, in that if we take a blood or a saliva measure, we are testing the here and now, whereas urine, it's your blood has gone through your kidney and then come out the other end. Mm. So you, if you take a first morning urine sample, that is not your first morning cortisol reaction. That's your overnight reaction. I must look into the history of why pathologists deem it appropriate to take a snapshot of a, of a, a hormone in this instance that has vast diurnal variation. I mean, it's almost like taking a temperature after you've gone for a 10K run. It's like a lot of measures we do in pathology. You know, when people say, oh, can I measure this? Can I measure that? I go, yes. And then you have to measure it again and again and again and again because it's constantly changing. Yeah. You know, our, our water-soluble vitamins um, are not steady. Uh, our glutathione is not steady. Our CoQ10 is not steady. Um, it only can give us an indication of what someone is doing. Yeah. Um, it's not an absolute. And this is really what I want to get across to practice is, you know, these numbers are not gospel. They are a guideline and a, an indication uh, for further investigation or some treatment and then follow-up because people are different. Not everyone fits in a reference range, like when you first get out and realise that none of your patients actually fit in the textbook that you learnt. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's always moving. It's just indicative. I always say, please look at it as an in indication with the case history. Get on my soapbox again. Yeah. Please put the case history into the mix. It's the old adage of you go, you're always going to get the answer to the question that you asked. Um, and if you're asking the wrong question, then you're getting the wrong answer. And I guess this is one of the issues that pathology has with functional pathology. We're not looking for disease. We're looking for dysfunction. Yeah, well, that's what I say to my clients. I say, you know, pathology tests are looking for pathology and we're looking for in the grey zone. You know, pathology, mm. standard pathology is black or white. Mm. You either have diabetes or you don't. Uh, we're looking in that grey zone before you get to the, you know, hello, my name the is Beth and I'm a diabetic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's... Yeah, that's why we're using these things. So you mentioned um, Cushing's and Addison's, and and this is where, yes, you need your blood tests, and they're actually using saliva as well. So saliva is now a, a good go-to method for testing for cushions when they take a midnight sample. So in standard medicine, they're using saliva cortisol yeah. um, for cushions, um, and because it, it is also a good representation of the bioavailable cortisol, what that person is actually using at that time. And so that's why sometimes when, you know, generally they say that there is a correlation between the blood and the saliva, 
And that is, of course, providing someone hasn't bound it all up in binding globulin and uh, and then we're not seeing more of it out mm. in the saliva mm. or vice versa. So you do, uh, in practice, I use both blood and saliva to kind of look at things. I use the saliva more as a ongoing treatment um, you know, creation. Yeah, measure. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then the blood is, I am actually looking for pathology then. And as I mentioned before, uh, doing these things, we have found Addison patients. You know, we have discovered patients that have been gone on to being diagnosed with Addison. Right. Uh, and they would have been missed had we not, you know, done this picture of blood and saliva and then further testing with ACTH and the like. So it it is definitely, I would definitely suggest that it is saliva is a better way to do it. It is also easier for the patient. Plus, we are getting a true morning cortisol. If I give you a spit tube and say, on waking, can you do that? Mm. Yes, you can. Opposed to on waking, can you pop down to the <laughs> blood collection centre and wake up the nurse and get your blood taken? Can I ask, Beth, in your experience, because you mm. have a vast experience of checking these lab lab reports, yeah. have you seen a correlation or a total discord between the, as we've spoken about before, the ebb and flow of the or the variance in secretion of cortisol throughout the day using multiple yeah. tests versus the whole blood test at one spot during the day. Oh, completely. This is how we this is how you can miss people like Addison's and Cushing's and what have you, because unless they you take that blood at that particular time and, and I've had people, you know, we generally say to people you've got to go in before ten o'clock in the morning. Right, because usually the collection centre will turn you away otherwise. Yeah. But if I've been awake for four hours, mm. I'm yeah, just measuring dropped. my. It's already dropped, and I'm just going to my day to day stuff. So that's why often you may see, as a general rule, I would say people look normal. I'm doing my air bunny quotes, normal in um, <clears throat> blood, and then you get the saliva, which they've done, you know, first thing in the morning lunch, afternoon, evening, it's a completely different picture. And when I correlate that with, because I'll put that in a little uh, snapshot, I'll go, oh, well, in the morning this happens and then you're hanging for your coffee and then maybe two and then you have a little cheeky muffin to pep you up again and I <laughs> and make up this little story about them and they sit there going, yeah, how did you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's because I can read through the, the cortisol levels during the day that, again, still give me an indication because, yes, there'll be some bouncing around as it goes, but not a really overt bouncing, if that makes sense, unless they're literally going from uh, really low and then they fly up at night time because whatever stresses them out. And then you can usually discover what that is, you know, by asking the patient the right questions, as you said before, uh, and get an idea and go, right, well, that was an anomaly for your day-to-day -day life or no, that's your life all the time. This is not helpful. Let's talk about that and help support you through that. Beth, how useful do you find the multiple tests and how many of the multiple tests do you do? It starts at four, but you can add further ones in depending on, you know, how 
nuanced you want to look for the drop or the the flow of yeah. the cortisol response. Um, but I also do remember um, Dr. Andrew Heyman speaking about that, you know, we're not always seeing a drop or a low cortisol. It can be high and unwavering. So it's kind of like the, you know, FSH response that you get in uh, after menopause. It remains high because there's nothing to cause a cycle. Um, because you're not getting that feedback. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, so he, he speaks about these people, you know, mainly with a, a, a chronic inflammatory response. But, mm -hmm. um, but he says that it can even be inverted throughout the day. The big picture that I took out away, though, is that they're not getting that traditional drop that you get after the mor um, in the morning. Um, they're always high or sometimes no, always they're, low. Yeah, they're what I call my meerkat. They're your meerkats. They're always on alert. So always yeah. high as your meerkats. And what if they're low? Oh, they're either a sloth or a koala, <laughs> you know, who sleep 18 hours a day or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and people usually get that. If you put a picture of, you know, an animal in their head, they go, oh, yeah, I get it. That's yeah. what I feel like. And that's, well, yeah. And it is because they're not getting that feedback mechanism to say, hey, 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 it's okay. You can turn off and slow down a bit now. You know, they're constantly on alert. Um, so you've got to remember that we talked about last time about the CAR, the cortisol awakening response. Yeah, so let's talk about this. Yeah, so up until recently-ish, it was the four-point cortisol test where you looked at the morning, somewhere between, you know, six and eight to ten in the morning, midday, afternoon and evening. That's kind of been turned on its head when they really discovered this cortisol awakening response, which is, uh, to just remind people, is your built-in mechanism uh, governed by the hippocampus and the light-sensitive, I can never say this right, um, suprachiasmic nucleus of the hypothalamus. Let's call it the SCN. Uh, and then also we have the natural rise of cortisol that starts um, you know, several hours before waking due to normal circadian HPA access activity. So, you know, the ACTH saying, come on, let's go. And then the exposure to light, right? That's where the SCN comes in. Yep. We get that temporary exposure to light. Um, now, what we have to remember is this only happens uh, in the morning. Only the morning light doesn't happen if we had a little nana nap in the afternoon and then wake up or... Uh, yeah, if we've been exposed to, you know, we've been at the casino all night and there's lights on for 24 hours. Right, that was going to be my that. next question. Yeah, you can't go to the casino, Andrew. It doesn't work. <laughs> right? You can't be a meerkat at the casino. That's dangerous and expensive. Um, so, yeah, so it's morning light and the ACTH. So well, how that happens then is also the ACTH has a, a, a rise and then so that's our normal first morning awake. We go, oh, the morning has arisen. Here we are. Then in the next 30 minutes, we have this, I'm going to call it a surge of cortisol to kind of get us really up and going and here's the day. Then it comes back down a bit and then continues declining over the day. So if we just take one sample, depending on that one sample, are we taking it when they first wake? 
or, you know, somewhere in that half an hour surge will change our belief of that person of what they're doing. So if they start off really low, we go, oh, dear, they're a, they're a sloth, um, opposed to we measure them, you know, they get up and they start spitting and we get it half an hour to 45 minutes later. All of a sudden they're a meerkat. Right. And so we're going to label them as an animal, perhaps incorrectly, because we're not seeing that <clears throat> the beginning, the rise and the fall. So that is, and it has been widely studied now that this is more indicative of the HPA excess, um, talking to the adrenals rather than before we've always just talked about, we're measuring the adrenals, we're measuring the adrenals. Mm. And what we're actually more interested in is the HPA access dysfunction or maladaptation to the day. And, you know, it's about how we perceive the day is going to hit. So what happens is someone might wake up a bit a bit more sloth-like because they've not quite hit their straps. And then all of a sudden they start thinking, oh, my God, uh, I've got this, I've got this on, I've got that meeting, I've got that podcast scheduled, I've got this. All of a sudden, poof, up their cortisol goes and they're in meerkat mode. And then some people will stay in that mode all day. So that might be what Hamer was talking about when they stay up. They're just in that fight or flight mode. That's, you know, the adrenaline kind of kicks in and they keep going with the cortisol all day. Yeah. And people will still say, or the clients will still say to you that they're fatigued. And you'll say, yes, because running around like that is exhausting because you're supposed to come down somewhere. Uh, just like the people that are flatlining uh, who say they're exhausted because they're not getting any any spike. What about the difference in therapy for the meerkats versus sloths or koalas? You know, do you find that the therapy differs dramatically or do you find that no matter what the issue, if they're stressed, you're still going to be using these nourishing herbs? You know, I guess particularly you would be cautious if somebody's flat with cortisol, if you with um, stimulants, like mm-hmm. for instance, you said coffee. Um, yes. it's, it's great to wake up and you need to function, but how do we best do that that's going to look after your health in the long term? Yes, and and I don't deny people their morning coffee, um, and I understand that, that people need that. It'll be, they need it. It becomes their normal uh, that they have to do that. But certainly, yes, as a general rule, you would treat because you're still treating that HPA access adrenal process the same generally. However, yes, if someone's really, really high, I would be using more of the calming, perhaps bring more nervines in. And also I would also look at, this is where the neurotransmitter aspect comes in as well, which is a whole other podcast again, Um, uh, to try and bring that down. So things like your, you know, your GABA, your L-theanine, your tryptophan, to try and temper some of that excess aggravation, yeah. uh, for want of a better word. Uh, and then when they're flatlining, um, certainly you have to be careful with going, right, well, let's give you all the stimulant adaptogens and really you know, give you a spike, even though they might ask for it. They go, oh, can you just give me something? Uh, I just say, yeah, we'll pop down to the local nightclub. That'll give you a quick high, <laughs> uh, but it's not sustaining. 
So I tell people we have to build them up slowly. Plus, they have to do stuff for themselves. And this is where we talked earlier about, or previously about sleep and sunlight and, you know, exposing themselves to the actual natural daylight, um, which gets a bit hard here in Melbourne in the winter. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely all those other things and looking at their lifestyle and what have you. And, and the other thing you have to look at, again, when you're measuring or you're looking at a result and going, you know, this is what I have a lot of practice will ring me at the lab and say, I've got this result, what does it mean? Mm. And I'm like, well, tell me about the patient. Mm -hmm. Because just reading numbers, I could make up a hell of a story and be way off the mark because I don't know they're on suppressive medication or they're on, you know, this is what their disease or a hundred one things I don't know. Mm. Um, And what we also have to remember is that when we're measuring the car, so the car, you measure it immediately on waking, the next 30 minutes, as in there has to be a break. You don't do it ongoing. So if someone can't sit well, you aren't going to get, again, you're only going to get an average over all this time. You're not going to get the actual rise and fall. They need to be able to half fill a tube soon as they wake up, then 30 minutes later, and then another 30 minutes later, then we go on to the midday, afternoon, and before bed. So get the evening one. What is the help when you're at 8 o'clock at night and I'm doing the washing up or I'm still in the middle of dinner and you want to measure my cortisol? I want to know what my patients are doing when they're going to bed at 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. Where is their cortisol then? Because that gives me an indication of how where they're going to sleep and and also then do they ever come down at night time to start back again the next day? You know, some people are like hovering or in a holding pattern on high because they never come down at night time mm. before they're back up again at, you know, 11 out of 10 sort of thing. So that's that's it's more important to look at the nighttime one because then you can also plus or minus a melatonin measure, especially if people are talking about difficulty getting to sleep or staying asleep. Mm. Um, the other thing to be mindful of when you're doing these measurements is to generally do it on a normal, more air quotes, a normal day. Not when someone's on school holidays and relaxing, or maybe they're not because they're on school holidays. So <laughs> and they've got the kids. <laughs> <laughs> they've got all the kids around them. Um, but a normal work day, because remember we said it's about your anticipated stress for the day. So doing it while I'm in Bali, drinking a bintang and I'll do this fit test, that's not the real world. School holidays are probably not the real world. Um, you know, a Sunday is not your real world. So it'll show a different measure for a different day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like what they're doing. Um, and the other thing is uh, exercise. So if someone's a med exercise junkie, that is going to raise your cortisol anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours post-exercise. So you need to preferentially ask your patient not to exercise um, on the day they're doing the test because it can falsely elevate it. Also, you have to be careful with your ladies because strangely they found in studies that around ovulation, um, a lady's cortisol would be more elevated than normal. So you just have to check 
uh, with your menstruating ladies when they're doing that so you don't call them a meerkat when they're not. Yeah. Um, shift work is always a problem because if someone's on shift work and they're not normally waking up at 6 or 7 o'clock, they're waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning, I generally get those patients to follow their time. Yeah. You know, so if their morning is 2 o'clock, that's when we do it. Yeah. And then, yes, I'm going to expect that they don't have that morning light to awake them, but it still gives us an idea whether we have that that ebb and flow from the HP axis first thing in the morning and then across the rest of the day. So um, you also have to be careful with saliva. So no exercise, no eating or smoking or coughing just before they're going to do a sample as well. Because eating will increase their um, their glucose and their insulin and then their cortisol. Caffeine will, of course, can spark. Smoking just buggers up the pH of the saliva and changes how we can measure it. And no brushing the teeth because they get, in case they get micro bleeds and we get hemoglobin contamination into the sample. Right. And especially well, not when they're sick. Like not when you're sick. We don't like mucus and doobies in the saliva and your cortisol is going to be different because you're fighting a, a virus or some other illness. Now, this yeah? is my next question. The influence mm-hmm. of infections on yeah. cortisol response um, and indeed stress response and how we appropriately measure. Um, and well, then I, I guess, you know, you can go down several rabbit holes as to how you intervene. But it, uh, I, And forgive me for mentioning his name again and again, but, get, but he's a very impressive practitioner, this guy, Dr. Andrew Heyman, um, when he was talking about the um, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, SIRS. Mm-hmm. There was a few pearls that I got from him just about the responsibility that we've got about um, testing for. And then the biggest no-no was what was touted as the panacea about a decade ago, and that was supplementing with cortisol. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, would anybody give prednisolone if somebody had an active infection? They do. I I was prescribed prednisolone for an active infection, and I was a bit like, really? But alongside Um, other agents, correct? Yes, yes. And, you know, in, in hindsight, yeah, it saved me from going to hospital. So that was, you know pretty okay and it was short term that's the difference short term versus and you're talking prednisolone whereas some practitioners use uh, cortisol acetate or hydrocortisol yes, yeah. yes, so different kettle of fish um, one one is way more powerful than the other mm. um, but you still can go into problems when people are using cortisol supplementation Uh because again, you're working with feedback mechanisms, and then do we, you know, it's a bit like if you're over utilize testosterone, if people are overdosing testosterone, they turn off the feedback mechanism from, you know, their brain to their testes, uh, and then we have to put that back together again. So it can be a bit like that with cortisol. And it, it's like if they're in an infection, they're in an inflamed. So let's call it inflammation, right? Because it may be an infection, it may be an ongoing. Yeah inflammatory thing so sometimes we will or sometimes most of the time we will elevate or the body will put out more cortisol to try and because we've got to remember cortisol is anti-inflammatory that's why they invented prednisolone Mm. Uh, so sometimes you have to look if someone is flying high on the 
uh, result picture of cortisol, you have to find out, is that because they're running like a meerkat or is that because they've got a, a major inflammatory situation going on? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, to be turning that down, will that aggravate the the inflammation? Mm. That becomes the seesaw of, you know, how to do this gently. And I always, I always just go gently um, first because some people respond really well and then some people need a bit more. Uh, I'm talking about supplementation mm. and they also have to do, you know, it, it's like I tell people you can't, we can give you these tablets, but if you're still sitting in the frying pan, um, you're not going to, you know, stop getting burnt. So, you know, I have to try and get people to concept that, yeah, you can't stay where you are or keep living that life. Um, you know, I had a patient recently who said, oh, well, you know, I only sleep four hours a night and I'm fine. They weren't fine. They were really highly strong when they came in the office. And, you know, clearly four hours of sleep is not doing them a favour, um, especially when then they get up and do, you know, they get up at uh, four or five o'clock in the morning to do exercise. Yeah. Um, you know, I really had to strap it down and sit on a chest and say, blow it down, girlfriend. Um, because it's just not, you can't maintain that. You cannot maintain that without breaking somewhere. And people, you know, when we talk about anxiety or stress, I find that there's this concept that it means running down the street naked screaming or, or something. Mm. People forget that it can be insulin resistance. Um, inflammatory conditions, hello, autoimmune conditions or things like that, um, metabolic syndrome, they don't put that under stress, you know, and it's like, well, it's long-term stress. Yeah. People forget that it's Stress or. Stress ors, and Or if they've been in a bad relationship, a job that's, you know, killing them, um, they've had dramas with their children. I mean, look, the list is endless of yeah. what can happen to people and they forget that they are all tickets that um, they're collecting along the way that affects these results of what they see, of what we see as the practitioner when we get the results. We're entering the age of personalised medicine and more and more we're seeing the usefulness of um, SNPs and how yeah. we can, if nothing else, you know, you can't change it, but you can get it as a clue to other aspects that might be influencing how people respond to stress. Say the words adrenal fatigue, it's not. But yeah. What about things like SNPs and their effects on cortisol response? Like, for instance, you know, methylation. Don't say Or Compt or things like this. Comped. How we actually handle yeah. adrenaline and coffee and estrogens. And... Yeah, Compt is definitely um, a SNP that can affect people, especially if they're homozygous. Uh, those people tend, and this is more of a on the neurotransmitter angle, those people do tend to be more anxious, so more that high cortisol. And I, again, I don't like to be, it's a bit like when people just go under or over methylation. But to me, that's too simplistic. Um, it's a bit like, you know, hyper or hyper, unless you're Addison's or Cushing's, then you truly are. But otherwise in the middle there, 
uh, your varying degrees of at different times. So it's hard to say you are anxious, so therefore you're always going to have high cortisol mm. because eventually I find long-term people can't keep running on that little hamster wheel at um, speed, so then over time you end up seeing that saliva cortisol results start to flatten a bit because they, they the feedback mechanism, remember we talked last time about the feedback me- mechanism to the brain that's going to try and slow you down by reducing the output of ACTH. So, again, we still have to kind of manage their stress so they're not internally turning themselves down so they're not getting the, you know, the heat on the fry pan to keep moving. So we've covered a lot, but ultimately the four-point test versus the car test, which one's best and how how should you do it? The, the car. The car test because, or the cortisol awakening response test, because we do those three samples within the first hour of waking, this is when we're truly seeing how the patient's HPA access is working or, or, or I'm not going to say not, is working mm. um, and how they are responding to the day's perceived stresses that are coming. So it gives a bit of an idea of how that patient internalises stress. Because if we just do the, the old four point where we just do that one in the morning, as I mentioned earlier, you not know whether you're hitting the low or the high of the car. So the car definitely gives you an idea that, okay, well, that person's HPA access is working correctly and then their output of cortisol diminishes so we still support opposed to showing that someone's car is highly elevated uh, and so that is, you know, we need to calm that down because they're in a heightened response and that is fast-tracking to our long-term chronic diseases uh, and versus if they're not having any response, then you have to look at why is this so. And this is where the case history, uh, just briefly, we didn't mention where the case history fits in about why people are high or low. So we're also going to remember if someone's high with their cortisol or elevated car, so we mentioned about ladies around ovulation, but other also older patients. Okay, as we age, we, we spit out more cortisol and less melatonin. So we need to consider the age of the patient, um, what um, fat levels they're carrying. You know, they've got a lot of um, central obesity, um, uh, uh, any sort of mental health disorders. Um, and then if it's really low, we have to find out questions about depression and chronic fatigues and post-traumatic stress or sad, um, sad seasonal affective disorder. You oh, know, yes. are we measuring this in the winter and things like this? So it's it it's really gives us more of a it just rounds out really what we're testing, which is cortisol, not necessarily adrenals, is cortisol. And it, then it really directs us more to right, well this is where further testing or better questions, how can we talk about diet, lifestyle, and supplementation to assist this person? Do neurotransmitters come into it? Do we need to look down the inflammation pathway? Do we need to put this into the mix with their metabolic dysfunctions? Uh, 
um, or diseases. So I, I'm definitely a new fan of the car and that all my patients get that nowadays and it's definitely it's definitely just fine tuned how I what I'm looking at. Yeah. And the patient understands it better. I mean, I remember being so excited when I just discovered the four point saliva. But this has just really increased how I treat and how the patient understands themselves better. Um, and and I find that this is a way. So I had a patient who told me she wasn't stressed. We did the car and we saw how she completely flew off the handle um, between first waking and that first half hour. And it was enough for her to realise she, she changed her whole um, working lifestyle. Mm. From that, um, and because she was able, and she it was her own business, but she worked with her husband. But she was able to go back to her husband and explain why she needed some more me time and yeah. why they needed to change their hours and how they 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 worked smarter. Yeah, you know, it, it changed her to make her work smarter, and she's so much better for it. So that's, and I think that's the key is if we've got a picture that we can explain to patients and they understand why we're asking them to make the changes that we are, you've got a win-win. Yeah. I, I think the, the concept of measuring an anticipatory stress response gives you so much information as to how somebody can cope with future assaults or future mm -hmm. stressors. Obviously, you then need to put your detective hat on to find you know, the causes or the antecedents. Are they infections? Is it you know, marital? Is it you know, interpersonal communications? Whatever it be, but that's the practitioner part. But I can just see this also evolving further down the track with the access to, um, or the greater access to neuroimaging now and that some of the practitioners are using this, particularly in Melbourne where they've got this awesome setup down at Swinburne. It'd be mm. very interesting to tie in these measurements of hormones with changes of volumes over time of, you know, brain capacities and things like that. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Neuroquant. Yeah. yeah. It'd be really yeah. interesting to see oh, the, the actual responses to treatment and intervention that you can find a recovery for these patients. Beth, thank you so much for taking us through and, and finishing off Adrenal Fatigue is a Myth and Here's Why. My absolute pleasure, and um, you can go and have a lie down now. <laughs> this is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Hi, I'm Dr Mark Donoghue. Join us for our new podcast series, FX Omics. We'll be exploring the new technologies of integrative medicine, including genomics, metabolomics, the microbiome, and many more fields that are transforming healthcare. We're focusing on how they apply to practitioners and how we can incorporate them into our patient care. We aim to make these exciting and sometimes challenging fields relevant to you and your practice. Search for FX Omics on your favourite podcast platform and we look forward to your company.